Well, I'm excited about today, really, really excited. In Romans 15:4, I put it on your outlines, the Apostle Paul says this about the Old Testament scriptures. He says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In other words, the Old Testament is in our Bibles that we might learn about the way God works, about the scope of his work and his faithfulness to continue his work. And as we learn more about the Lord's work, it fills us with comfort and with patience because we become more aware of God's work in our own lives and we recognize that he is faithful to us too. And so these stories of God's work in the Old Testament give us hope. They remind us that God has been at work in our lives all along. He's at work in our lives right now and he has great things in store for our future. The word exodus means going out. And on the surface, the book of Exodus is the story of how God frees his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt and calls them to walk in their identity as his chosen people. As a supernatural picture, Exodus is the story of the gospel. It's the story of how God frees people like you and I from the bondage to sin and death that we are all under and calls us to walk in our identity as his adopted sons and daughters. So write this down. The story of Exodus is a picture of how the gospel works in our lives. It's a picture of how the gospel works in our lives. And so yes, it is a wonderful, wonderful story. And as we journey through this amazing book together, you're gonna learn some things about God and his work in your life that I believe are really gonna grow your love and appreciation for the Lord. Now to further understand the supernatural picture that unfolds across the story of the Exodus, you need to know a few more things, sort of the key to understanding the supernatural picture here. The children of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, whatever you want to call them, they represent us in this story, enslaved by sin. Egypt represents the world. That's our home before grace gets involved. Pharaoh will represent our adversary, Satan. Now, Pharaoh is the ruler of what country? He's the ruler of Egypt. And we just said Egypt is a picture of what? The world. Satan is the ruler of what? He's the ruler of this world. He's the God of this age. The Bible tells us that. And Moses, finally, you can write this down. Moses will represent God's appointed deliverer. Moses will be a type of Jesus. He's going to be a picture of Jesus when he enters the story in chapter 2. Now, there is a ton, I mean a absolute boatload of history, nuance, and textual issues that come up when studying Exodus. And so I'm going to do my best in this series to work through all that information during the week and then share with you the bottom line information that is going to be most helpful and important. Now for the sake of time, when we get together and do this, I am not always going to share with you how I arrived at that bottom line conclusion. But if you want to dig into all of those Bible nerd details, I put a note on your outlines, I'd recommend listening to Dr. Michael Heiser's The Naked Bible podcast. And he goes through the book of Exodus in great detail, getting into all the minutia that we don't have time to. 
and you're welcome to check it out for yourself, but I'm pretty sure 99% of you are gonna listen to one episode and you're gonna say, you know what, I'm, I'm good with just getting the bottom line from Jeff on Sunday because we're talking hours to get into things like the dating of the book of Exodus only to reach the conclusion that it's an absolute quagmire and there's, there's no real way to know for sure. You'll be like, I would have been fine if Jeff had just told me that in 10 seconds. So speaking of Bible nerd issues, since we're at the beginning of our study, we should briefly address the issue of who wrote the book of Exodus. The Torah, many of you know, is the Hebrew name given to the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch in Greek. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus quoted from all five books of the Torah. And every time he did, he referred to Moses as the author. So it's clear from scripture that Jesus considers Moses to be the primary author of the Torah, which includes Exodus. However, there are places in the Torah, including Exodus, where it is undeniable, and I'll try pointing out when we get to them in this series, where it is undeniable that somebody else is the source of the information. Joshua, Miriam, Ithamar, Eliezer, the Levitical priests, for example, even during Moses' lifetime. There's also information in the Torah that could only have been added after the death of Moses. For this reason, I would currently consider myself to be what's known as a supplementarian. Now, a supplementarian accepts Moses as the core author of the Torah, but believes that the text was supplemented later on by other qualified writers who were also inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now hang with me before you're like, heresy! A supplementarian still believes that the Torah is 100% divinely inspired just over centuries rather than the lifetime of one individual, in this case Moses. It's viewing divine inspiration of the scriptures as a process rather than one event. So it's saying rather than God having one moment where he's like, boom, here's a massive download for you, Moses. Pick up the pen. You're going to write 50 chapters right now. It's saying, no, the whole Torah was a process that involved more people than Moses, and it took a couple of centuries to come together. Now keep hanging with me. We believe that God was present in the whole process. And if you're uncomfortable with this, let me just say this. We already all believe this already about the formation of the biblical canon. The Bible that we have, the 66 books, we all firmly, fully believe that the divine inspiration of the Bible was a process when it comes to the canon. We all believe that about the Old Testament as well. What we're just saying is that the same thing was true with the Torah. It was a process, and there were other people who may have made a few editorial changes along the way that were also inspired by the Lord. The tradition of the Jewish fathers teaches that Moses received the Torah on Sinai, then handed it down to Joshua, who handed it down to the elders, who handed it down to the prophets, who handed it down to the men of the great assembly. These are all qualified men that were viewed as highly qualified by the people of Israel, and any of them could have been part of God's divine process of assembling the Torah. So here's what we're talking about, because this doesn't conflict at all with the view that Jesus has that Moses is the author of the Torah. If you're putting a human author on it, it would be Moses 100%. He's the main author, he's the main editor. What I'm saying is there may have been people along the way who may have changed a place name to update it, because it was given a new name since the time Moses wrote it. There may have been people who would have added some information after Moses had died to finish out a story, and we won't necessarily know all of their names. As I said, I'm gonna try point out those spots where it happened. It's sort of like if you imagine if you wrote a book and you died, and over the next couple of centuries, 
people added a couple of things to it. Your name would not go off the front of the book. You would still be the author in a literal sense, in a factual sense, in every sense. There would just be a few updates along the way, not changing doctrine or anything like that. So it doesn't conflict with the view of Jesus, but we're going to find by the end of our study that that is likely the view that makes the most sense, is the supplementarian view. Now if you're looking for a basic outline of Exodus, It easily falls into three sections. I put it on your outline. We've got a first section that is the events that are gonna take place in Egypt. That second section beginning in chapter 15 is gonna involve their journey to Mount Sinai as God leads them out of Egypt. And then the whole sort of last 21 chapters of the book is gonna be events that take place at Mount Sinai. And so with that, as brief an overview as I can give, the book of Exodus begins. So look with me in your Bibles at Exodus chapter one. Oh, and I also wanted to mention, if you don't have one of the the binders we have on the table back there, maybe pick one up today. You can put your notes in and begin keeping everything in the right place. It'll be handy over time. So Exodus chapter one, verse one. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Now, if you've studied Genesis, when we did fairly recently, you'll recall that the book ends with Jacob and all his sons moving to Egypt where they're given choice land and provided for by Joseph's boss, Pharaoh. This takes place because Joseph is at that time the prime minister of Egypt and is responsible for guiding Egypt through seven years of catastrophic famine that had overtaken the world. Exodus opens by telling us about the caravan of Joseph's family that came into Egypt. And I just need to mention that the 70 number that's mentioned there is not the total size of the caravan. In verse five, the phrase, were descendants of Jacob, is literally translated came from the loins of Jacob. So the idea is that this passage is only listing the direct biological descendants of Jacob. The number 70 does not include wives, it doesn't include servants, it doesn't include any adopted children, their families, etc. And so in reality, the caravan would have been significantly larger in size, likely consisting of several hundred people. So this means that the number 70 being used here as a subset is likely symbolic to indicate the fact that from God's perspective, the complete Jewish nation, the whole Jewish nation, all of them relocated into Egypt. That seems to be the point here. And these opening verses are the same in the original Hebrew as Genesis 46, eight to 27. On a literary level, that's supposed to tell us that Exodus is simply a continuation of the story of Jacob and Israel from Genesis. More than that, it's a continuation of the story of God's promises to Abraham. We're just meant to keep reading through. Satan tried to thwart God's plans in Eden. He tried to thwart them at Babel, and he's going to try again in Egypt. But the good news, as always, is that God is faithful. And no matter how hard Satan or the forces of chaos try to thwart the plans of God, God's plans will be accomplished. 
That's gonna be another sub-theme of the book of Exodus. No matter what Satan tries to do to derail God's plans, God's will will be accomplished. And as we read and study Genesis, I would pray that we just keep that in the back of our minds. And remember that God always keeps his promises and nobody can stop his plans. And let me say this, always remember your life is not the one exception to that rule. Yours is not the one life where God will not keep his promises. He always will. He always, always will. Verse six, we read, and Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So from the time Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt to be with Joseph, up to the end of verse seven, around 350 years pass before the story picks up in verse eight. They move there, Joseph has time to die, more than three centuries pass before verse eight picks up. And in those centuries, God continues to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham. Israel keeps growing into a mighty and prosperous and highly numerical nation within another nation. They're a nation within a nation, Israel within the nation of Egypt. And to give you an idea of just how much they had grown across those centuries, when they leave Egypt in about 80 years from this point, they will number around two million people, two million people. But hanging over Israel's prosperity, hanging over their numerical fruitfulness in Egypt, is the specter of part of the prophecy God had shared with Abraham back in Genesis 15. I put it on your outlines. You might recall that one of the things God had told Abraham was this, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That is an overview of much of the book of Exodus. God said that Israel would end up in a land that is not theirs. That's the land of Egypt. They're there. But apparently something is about to change. They're going to end up serving Egyptians and being afflicted by Egyptians. And that's going to last for at least four generations, 400 years. But then God will move, he will judge the Egyptians, free Israel and bring them out of Egypt with great possessions, it says, and lead them back into the promised land. How does that all go down? Well, let's find out. Verse eight, 350 years roughly now since Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt. In verse eight we read, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now just to reiterate again, it's very easy if you grow up in the church to sort of get the idea in the Exodus story, Joseph dies and then one or two pharaohs later, this guy comes up who doesn't know him. It's not the case. This is more than three centuries later. And this particular king does not know or does not care about the special relationship the Jews and the Egyptians have enjoyed since the time of Joseph. It's been mutually beneficial. But he doesn't care or doesn't know. At the same time, the centuries have caused Israel to forget about God and all that he has done for them. The Jewish people had forgotten their roots and had become simply consumed and caught up with living in Egypt. Started businesses, run farms, were doing very well, were being blessed by God and they sort of 
forgot about the Lord. It was very easy to do. Egypt was the best place in the world to live at that time. They were the most powerful nation and the most progressive, the most advanced in literature and science and medicine, you name it. Verse nine we read, and he, the king of Egypt, said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So this Pharaoh, he's getting nervous as he looks at the strength and the number of Jews that are now in his country, this nation within his own nation. And so he appeals to the nationalism, the protectionist tendencies of his own citizens and he says, hey guys, are you, are you paying attention? These Jews have grown in number and influence to the point where, I mean, if they struck a side deal under the table with one of our enemies, they could take over our country from the inside. They don't even consider themselves to really be Egyptian. So we need to look out for the well-being of Egypt here. The situation from a political perspective, a political perspective is, is understandable. Pharaoh felt that he was watching his country be taken over by the unstoppable, inevitable numerical growth of the Hebrews, and he didn't want to let that happen. It was perhaps the first recorded instance of anti-Semitism because this Pharaoh was essentially saying, are you guys seeing all the wealth that these Jews have? Are you seeing all the positions of leadership that they're in? Man, from my perspective, it looks like the Jews are trying to take over Egypt. They're not even from here. It's a scenario that has played out almost everywhere where Jews have tried to settle outside of Israel. The problem is, ironically, that God promised to bless the ethnic descendants of Abraham. And so everywhere the Jewish people go, they prosper. They literally can't help it because God's blessing is upon them. And they do accumulate wealth and influence and authority. And as a result, people become envious and jealous of them. And eventually that leads to hate, which results in persecution, removal, expulsion, or the murder of the Jews, and they move on to the next place. The same dynamic that was behind the Holocaust was at work all the way back in Egypt all these thousands of years ago. Verse 11, therefore, so here's the solution that Pharaoh and his advisors come up with. Therefore, they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them taskmasters over the children of Israel to afflict them, there's that word that God promised Abraham would happen back in Genesis 15, to afflict them with their burdens. So they enslaved the children of Israel. Now we don't know exactly what kind of servitude or slavery Israel was under. For example, there's no evidence that the women were enslaved. In Exodus chapter three, when we get there in the King James, God gives the Israelites these instructions. You don't need to worry about the context right now. Just take a look at the verse in your outlines. God will say this to the children of Israel. He'll say, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house. So the instruction that God will give Israel in chapter three when we get there seems to imply though that even after being enslaved, the Israelites were living among, they were living next to, or in some cases even in the same house as Egyptians and were able to maintain ongoing social relationships. So it doesn't seem to be a full-on POW type of slavery that we're talking about. 
What it was most likely was a state slavery where the Jewish men were forced to work indefinitely for the state for long hours under degrading and brutal conditions. They were not paid for their work. They received enough food to keep them strong enough to do the work of the next day and so did their families and they probably received housing as well. They had no civil rights and their lot would have generally been a lot worse than that of a household slave. So what sort of things did the Egyptians make them do? Well, the text tells us that it was mostly enormous construction projects. We read, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Raamses. And I'm saying the word Raamses like that very specifically because it's two A's, Raamses, like Baal. And I'll tell you why in a minute. They worked on these two massive cities where food and supplies were stored, Pithom and Raamses. And this is where one of the greatest misconceptions among Christians about Exodus arises. Because people read the name Raamses and, and what do they say? They go, oh, oh, clearly, clearly this must be talking about Ramesses the Pharaoh, Ramesses the second, Ramesses the great. Who else could it be? And that's why when you go watch the old classic Ten Commandments movie, Charlton Heston's Moses goes toe-to-toe with Ramesses the great. Even if you go watch the, uh, the newer animated one, the Steven Spielberg DreamWorks one, The Prince of Egypt, in that whole story, he's growing up with who? With Ramesses the Great, Ramesses the Second. The only problem is they're completely different names in the original language, completely different names. They're not even close. There is no connection between the city, Ramesses, and the pharaoh, Ramesses. Absolutely no connection. And it's stunning because all a person would have to do is go look at the original root names in Egyptian and you would see they're completely different names. Now I'm not expecting any of us to do that, but it's astonishing that people would spend $100 million on a movie and not have anyone on the team who might just want to check that out to see if it's actually true. And that gets us into the whole issue of dating the book of Exodus. So when does it take place? What dynasty? What period? Early kingdom, middle kingdom, later kingdom? Which part of the kingdom? Here's the bottom line as I hinted at earlier. It's an absolute quagmire. It's an absolute mess of an issue. And it doesn't change anything about the purpose of this book or our study of this book. It's an infinite rabbit hole that you can go down if you want to on the internet, but here's what I'm gonna caution you. You might find one video and someone will say, hey, if you just move this around, then this all lines up and everything's good. But the problem with history is if you move this over here, then everything else that happened over here in history also has to move on the timeline. And everything sort of begins to fall apart. So you can't just look at one narrow angle when it comes to figuring out history. You have to look at all of world history and how it affects everything if you move things around. So I listened to a bunch of stuff about that this week and that was the conclusion I came to. I'm like, you, you can't actually know with certainty. You can make an early date or a late date work and you can disprove either. But as I said, that's not the purpose of this book and it's not the purpose of our study of this book. But there are a couple of things you should know. We talked about one of them already. You should know that it's almost impossible for Ramesses the Great to have been involved in the Exodus story. There's almost no chance that that was the case. The movies are getting it wrong. Second one to blow your mind. There is zero chance, absolutely zero chance that the Israelites built the pyramids. Absolutely no chance. The chronology and the history simply do not work 
But we also now know from archaeology, archaeology of the last 10 years, by the way, that all major Egyptian monuments, such as the pyramids, were built by professional, highly skilled Egyptians, masons, those sort of trades. It was a highly desirable job at the time, not a task entrusted to slave labor. And that would make sense because when they're building these things, they're building them for pharaohs who they believe are gods. And so they're not gonna do the equivalent of, we don't do this in Canada, but when I lived in the States, if you needed to get illegal labor, you would just go down to like the local Home Depot with a pickup truck and you could pick up like eight Mexicans who were in the country illegally and have them come work for you. That's what everybody did. And so the pyramids were not built by the Egyptian equivalent of that, okay? They weren't built by them going and getting some Israelites and being like, can you swing a hammer? Here, build this. They were building these massive monuments to honor their pharaohs who they thought were gods. And so this was a very special sacred task to them, certainly not something they were gonna entrust to slaves. Israelites did not build the pyramids. Don't let me catch you saying that, okay? They did not do it. Verse 12, and underline verse 12. I love this so much. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And I want us to really understand this, make a note of this. Israel was in a bad situation, but God was still working his plan. Really want you to see this and start bringing it into your own life and your own situations. Israel was in a bad situation, but God was still working his plan. Satan was out to destroy the children of Israel, but God was still working his plan and his plan was still working. Do not ever think that sometimes Satan is winning and sometimes God is winning. Do not think that sometimes God is working in your life and sometimes Satan is successfully stopping God from working in your life. It's not true. Just because it's a difficult season does not mean that God is not still moving. Everybody else is playing checkers. God's playing chess. He's working on a level that nobody else can even comprehend. Can you imagine how frustrating it must be to be Satan. And we're gonna see this as the story unfolds where every single time you think you've got a leg up on God, something happens in the future that reveals God actually knew you were gonna do that and he's incorporated it into his plan. Greatest example has to be the cross, right? How unbelievably frustrating to be Satan when Jesus rises from the dead and now anyone who puts their faith in him can be saved. Just a day after you were like, I've won. This is awesome. And God's like, actually, no, there was a plan all along for you to do this, so thank you for playing your part and fulfilling your role. I can't imagine how frustrating it would be to be Satan. And so even though he thinks that he is afflicting the people of God, he's winning, God is still working his plan and his plan is still working. We're supposed to remember that truth from studying the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis because that's the whole life story of Joseph, isn't it? In the final chapter of Genesis, when Joseph is reunited with the brothers who had tried to murder him, he reassures them that he has forgiven them by telling them this. You'll recall he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, you were doing the best you could to harm me, but God had a plan to use even that to do something good in my life. Satan and the forces of evil can try to work evil against those who belong to the Lord, 
but God will still find a way to do something good in it and get something good out of it. Always, always, always. Then we read this, and they, the Egyptians, were in dread of the children of Israel. They could sense that God was on Israel's side, that he was blessing them because he kept multiplying them and that made the Egyptians terrified. Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor or harshness and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, even harder work, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor or harshness. So Israel keeps growing and the Egyptians respond by making their labor even more difficult and harsh. But the same thing kept happening. The harsher they treated Israel, the more Israel multiplied in number. So the king of Egypt decided that a more radical approach was needed in order to curb the growth of the children of Israel. In verse 15 we read, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other Pua. Now there were more than two midwives for at this point 1.7 million, 1.8 million people, okay? Scripture just records the names of these two. Verse 16, and he, the king of Egypt said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. And I need to push the pause button for a second because one of the differences between reading the Bible and studying the Bible so when you read the Bible and you come across something you don't understand, you go, okay, and you move on to the next verse because you're reading the Bible. Now when you study the Bible, you find something you don't understand and you go, that's not okay. I gotta figure this out. You get out your commentaries. You go find your crazy people online that you go to in these type of situations. Your pastor, I don't know. And, if, and you look into it and you decide, I gotta figure this out. I gotta understand this. And we just had one of those spots right here, whether you skipped over it or not. What the heck is a birth stool? What in the world is a birth stool? There's no such thing as a birth stool, it turns out. Hebrew woman did not use something called a birth stool during childbirth. I mean, what's the plan? They're just gonna carry this around with them all day in case they go into labor? So what in the world is verse 16 talking about? Well, the original Hebrew term that is here translated birth stools is the word evan, evan. It's only used in one other place in scripture and that's in Jeremiah 18.3 where it's used to describe the wheel of a potter, a potter's wheel. If you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, it's a very famous well-known scene in there, the potter's wheel scene. The ancient Egyptians believed in a ram-headed creator god, body of a man, head of a ram, named Kanum, who was believed to use a sort of supernatural potter's wheel to mold babies and give them their unique characteristics, including gender, while they were in utero, while they were inside their mother's womb. So when a woman was pregnant, we now know from history that Egyptians would idiomatically refer to their child as being upon the potter's wheel. That was an Egyptian saying. So here's the bottom line. If you're not connecting all the dots, apparently the king of Egypt was instructing the midwives to visit the home of Hebrew women and perform prenatal exams while they were pregnant. When they identified males, they were to terminate the pregnancy. His instruction was to perform an abortion and terminate the pregnancy. 
Now, unbelievably, this was actually within the scope of ancient Egyptian knowledge and practice at that time. They had means of identifying the sex of a baby while it was in utero from a prenatal exam, and they had the ability to perform abortions. So on the surface, it looks like the king of Egypt is just starting to get extreme and violent about his protectionist nationalism, but we know there's more going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world. Satan is manipulating the situation to try and prevent God from keeping his promise to send a savior who would make a way for man to be saved from his sins. And we'll unpack this more in just a second, but for now, write this down. Via abortion and infanticide, Satan was attempting to derail God's plan to send a savior. Via abortion and infanticide, We'll find out about the infanticide part in a few verses. Satan was attempting to derail God's plan to send a savior. So I'll explain a little bit more. Back in Genesis 3.15, we find the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first recorded prophecy in history. And in it, God promises that the solution he's going to send will come in the form of the seed of a woman. So Satan was listening when God said this in just the same way Satan was also listening when God told Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was in Genesis 22. So Satan now knew from these two prophecies, the one that God spoke to Adam and Eve and to Satan himself actually, and the one that he spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22. Satan had that information and he now knew that God's plan was to send a savior in the form of a human male who would be born in the line of Abraham. So Satan looked at this situation in Egypt and he said, well, would you look at that? Everyone in the line of Abraham is in Egypt. So if I can kill all the Hebrew males in Abraham's line, then there's no way for God to keep his promise to send a savior through the line of Abraham. And so the master manipulator waits for an Egyptian king that he can manipulate, stoking fear and paranoia and violence in the heart of this king of Egypt. In his first two epistles, John the Apostle talks about the Antichrist spirit. He makes the point that Antichrist is not just a person who shows up in the end times, but it's a spirit. And I don't think it's a stretch to claim that it's the spirit that was at work in this Pharaoh at this time, just as it is the spirit who was at work desiring to exterminate the Jewish people in the church across history. We're talking about men like Haman in the book of Esther, Herod in the New Testament, Nero, Hitler, and we're beginning to see things like this taking place with Xi in China right now as well, this antichrist spirit, this desire to wipe out the people of God. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God, would you underline feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. When the midwives identified a Hebrew male baby in utero, they wouldn't report it. They would simply let the pregnancy run its course and the baby be delivered. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? So the first thing we need to recognize is that these midwives were displaying extraordinary courage. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on planet earth and they are directly defying him to his face, a direct order. They were risking the wrath of Pharaoh simply because they feared God more. They feared God more. 
And so they refused to participate in an ethnic cleansing campaign. You think about Jesus when he's speaking to his disciples and they say, well, you know, what if we get persecuted? What, what if we encounter difficulty for, for following you? I mean, people might try to kill us and this is the topic of conversation and Jesus says, he doesn't give the soft, fluffy answer you would expect, like, well, it's okay. He says, why are you fearing him who can destroy the body? Shouldn't you fear he who can destroy the body and the soul forever in hell? It's like, right, right. That God deserves our love because he's more wonderful than anything else. But if you ever find yourself in the place where you're motivated by fear, just remember, God deserves your fear more than anyone else as well. He is more awesome and more terrifying to stand before than any human ruler. We're going to talk about this more in a minute to get to the heart of this fearing God issue. But verse 19, it says, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman, for they are lively, or they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Listen, king, these, these Hebrew women, they're, they're just so vigorous that they have their kids before we even find out they're pregnant. I mean, they hear we're coming and they're just like, and then the baby's out, and there's nothing we can do about it. But here's what's really funny about this, okay? Here's what's really funny. Even back then, to Pharaoh, the most important, powerful man in the world, women could just shut down a conversation by mentioning anything related to women's issues, right? Because we notice Pharaoh doesn't even ask a follow-up question about how pregnancies work or prenatal exams work or have you tried this or that. He doesn't do anything. He's just like... Okay, sounds legit to me. All right, I let's just actually change the subject. I don't even want to talk about it. That's, that's what happens in the situation. And yes, the midwives had lied to Pharaoh. They had deceived him in order to protect the Hebrew babies. We know that scripture tells us to honor those in authority above us, including government leaders and officials who are not believers. So when are we to disobey them? When honoring them would dishonor the Lord. That's when you disobey those in authority above you, when honoring them would dishonor the Lord. And that's the situation the midwives were in. This is what I mean when I talk about fearing the Lord. They were going to dishonor somebody, one way or another. And because they feared God, they weren't going to dishonor him. And part of fearing God means that when you've gotta disappoint someone, you've gotta offend someone, you've gotta dishonor someone, you're saying, listen, bottom line is I fear God more than you. And I'd rather stand before you and be accused of dishonoring you than stand before God and have him accuse me of dishonoring him. That's the bottom line. It's the choice that courageous believers are making today in countries like China and Iran, literally today on Sunday. They're defying their country's leaders and laws because God has commanded them to preach the gospel and to gather together as the church. They want to honor their country's leaders and laws, but they're even more concerned with honoring God. These midwives lied and, and that wasn't necessarily okay. That wasn't necessarily okay. But God chose to record and focus on the part that they got right. That they honored him over Pharaoh and that's the point. And when you and I are in difficult situations, you know, like them, we might not handle things perfectly. But we'll never go wrong if our goal is to honor God above anyone or anything else. We'll never go wrong. So write this down. When we're faced with the choice to offend God or man, we choose to fear God and honor him. We choose to fear God and honor him. Verse 20, 
Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. And guess what happened? The people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. The direct translation there is that the Lord gave the midwives families of their own, husbands of their own, children of their own. He blessed them because they feared him. This is the promise of Genesis 12:3 at work in the lives of the midwives. You might recall that God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. That's what's going on here. That promise applied to all of Abraham's ethnic descendants, all the children of Israel. And by the way, that promise still applies to the children of Israel, the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. It's still in place as a promise. You bless them, God says, I will bless you. I will bless you. Well, Pharaoh decides that he's gotta find a way to stop these children of Israel from growing. Verse 22, it says, so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, who's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So Pharaoh now expands his command to all of his citizens, telling them, listen, if you find a Hebrew male baby anywhere, you're to throw it into the river and drown it. And just as things reached a dark turning point in Germany, there came a time when ordinary German citizens began turning in their Jewish neighbors, leaning on fences as they watched them gunned down in fields and buried in mass graves or carted off to concentration camps. So too, we now reach this dark point in the story where the Egyptian populace joins Pharaoh in his genocide against the children of Israel. And it is now solidly the side of evil, the Egyptians against the children of God, the children of Israel. Children of Israel were in a dark and a hopeless situation. And the horror of the situation is a picture of the condition that you and I are in apart from Jesus, without Jesus. Because without Jesus, we are in bondage to the power of sin in the world. We're destined to die in that condition and spend eternity separated from God. And when I say we're in bondage to sin, what I mean is that apart from Jesus, sin completely controls our lives. We're unable to do the things, to act the way that we truly want to act. We're unable to be the person we truly desire to be, the person we know we should be. We're unable to actually live and treat people the way we know we should. We want to do it, but we've got no power to actually do it. And so we reap a harvest of death and destruction in our relationships and our lives. And things are never really life-giving and good and fulfilling in the way that we long for them to be. And I know that some will hear me say this and say, well, my life isn't that bad, Jeff. Usually death and destruction. I've never thought about my friendships that way or relationships that way. But the reality is simply that apart from Jesus, we get used to our brokenness. We become so accustomed to it that it, it just starts to feel normal. And, and normal in our world becomes broken relationships. Normal becomes broken families, unfulfilling work, disappointment, lost dreams, mundane routines, and on and on and on I could go. That just becomes normal. Brokenness becomes normal. But they only seem normal because we're in bondage. We were created by God for more than this, but we're stuck in bondage, and our only hope is God sending us a deliverer. And you can imagine that the situation of the Israelites gets progressively worse 
one generation after another. I thought about North Korea once and it hit me. The reason North Korea is so hopeless is because they're now at the point where there's almost no one alive to remember what it was like before. And they have almost no access to the outside world. And that is a place of dark hopelessness. And the reason is that the North Koreans don't even know to fight because they don't even know what there is to fight for. They have no concept of freedom or civil liberties or human rights. They think what they have is normal. They have no reason to think that it's not the greatest thing in the world. And that's a place of real hopelessness. And that's where we are apart from Jesus. That's where families are where nobody knows the Lord. And all this brokenness in our lives is just thought of as as normal. And anything that's slightly above that is considered great and wonderful. But we're made for so much more. We're created to enjoy so much more. And our only hope is God sending us a deliverer. But the good news is that he did. He did and his name is Jesus. And if we'll follow him, he'll set us free and he'll begin to make us whole. God is going to send Israel a redeemer too and next week we're gonna meet him. As we said, his name is gonna be Moses and you're not going to miss the next part of Israel's story and the next part of our story, the story of the Gospels. So write this down. Last fill-in. Israel before Moses is like us before Jesus, hopelessly in bondage to the world. Hopelessly in bondage to the world. God's plans will be accomplished. No matter how hard the forces of evil or chaos try to stop them, God's plans will be accomplished in your life. They will be accomplished in your life. It doesn't matter how hard Satan tries to stop them. Remember Romans 8.28, I know you know it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That's you and I. We know, not we hope, we know that all things work together. All things at all times. Remember what we just read, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Where is the church growing the most in the world right now? Wherever the church is being afflicted. And the more they try and afflict the church, the more the church grows. For you and I, as Satan tries to afflict you, if you will stay connected to Jesus, the more you will grow, the more you will become like Jesus. So take some time today in the time of prayer and worship we're about to have. I just want to encourage you to to thank God in faith. Whatever difficulty, whatever challenges you might be going through in your life right now, you know, not you hope, you know that he's doing something good. That the more affliction there is, the more growth there is through Christ in your life. The more you're going to become like Jesus. Thank him for that. Don't ask him to do it. Thank him that he's promised that he will do it. He will accomplish it. He will work his plans and his plans will work. Absolutely guarantee it. Remember this and build your faith as you take communion. The Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15. Thousands of years ago, God said, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to send a savior through the line of Abraham. Satan tries over and over to stop him, over and over and over. But around 4,000 years, we think after that promise was made, Jesus is walking on the earth and God is keeping his promise. And if he can do that, if he can keep the whole plan on track across 4,000 years, he can get you from your birth 
to the day you arrive in his presence. That's not a big deal for him. My life is complicated. It's probably not gonna last over 100 years and you're only one person. God's got it. It's within his scope to handle. He's not gonna let you down. He'll be faithful. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the promises of your word and thank you that you are always perfectly faithful, Jesus. You always come through. You always keep your promises. And Father, I know all of us in this room, we don't just even have to take your word for it. We've seen you do it over and over and over again in our lives. Lord, may we be quick to remember and slow to forget your faithfulness. We've seen you do it and we believe whatever challenges we're facing right now, you'll do it again. You'll be faithful again. Lord, we thank you that you accomplishing your work and your purposes in our lives is not affected by any of the forces that work against us, anything or anyone that is opposed to us. Because if you're for us, who can be against us? Everything else is irrelevant. And Lord, we thank you that you are for us, God. You are for us and you are with us. And that's enough. That's more than enough. So Jesus, I pray you would just stir faith in us as we remember all you've done for us. Stir faith in us as we thank you for all that you're going to do. Thank you that you are unstoppable, you are matchless, and you do what you want, and what you want is good for us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.